0: This is Franchise Today, brought to you by FRM Solutions, providers of the best-in-class software solutions for franchise relationship management. Franchise Today is your destination for weekly information, conversations, and interviews with accomplished industry leaders, all of whom share best practices for sustainable
1: growth and sensible franchising. Here now, your host, Stan Friedman, to kick off this week's podcast. Today's Wednesday, September 1st. I'm Stan Friedman, and this is Franchise Today. Wow, did I just say September 1st? First, did summer just blow by or what? Well, so it goes, but we've still got 16 weeks ahead of us before we kiss this year goodbye and a strong roster of guests ahead as well. Speaking of great guests, my thanks to Jerry Henley for turning in a stellar performance last week. His focus on the soul of a franchise business, as well as their systems, in my view, is the answer. People first, always, for sustainable growth, or, as Jerry described it, scale to get better before you scale to get bigger. What a great segue that makes to my introduction of today's guest. Ron Berger is the personification of that philosophy. As the chairman and CEO of multiple pizza brands that Ron franchises, be it Nick and Willie's, Pizza Schmitz, or Figaro's, you'll find nothing but happy campers inside his franchise family. Sure, a lot of that is tied to unit-level performance, which is driven by effective systems and competent leadership. But it's also because of Ron's focus on relationships and caring deeply for his people. As an example, Ron recounted to me how when COVID first hit, he and his corporate team went all hands on deck informing, prodding, cajoling, and pulling their franchisees along to be certain that each and every one of them received every bit of both rounds of PPP that they were entitled to, EIDL, ERTC, and countless local grants that were available if they would just fill out the necessary paperwork. Well, he said it was shocking to him in how many cases his team literally had to actually make the filings on the franchisee's behalf to be certain that they got it all. Well, juxtapose that with a conversation that Ron told me about that he had at a pizza expo just last week in Las Vegas with the franchisor of a 50-unit chain who had never even heard of some of those programs, much less go all hands on deck to assist his franchisees in receiving these benefits. This could have been the difference maker for many who might not have otherwise pulled through. This is the kind of stuff that Jerry Henley talked about last week when he spoke about system and soul. Yes, product matters, systems matter, but don't pay short shrift to the culture of the organization. As Jerry said, it's soul matters too. When we return from a quick break, Ron Berger joins me to talk about his bumpy start in business, but moreover about his ultimate success and how everyone that hitches their wagons to his engine get rewarded both culturally and economically. Ron Berger, right here in two minutes or less. Franchise Today will be right back. But first, a word from our sponsors. Hey, franchisors of restaurants, bars, grills, and taverns, and multi-unit franchisees, listen up. This message is for you. Atmosphere TV wants to help you cut costs on overpriced cable TV for your business and either replace it completely or partially if sports programming is essential at your locations. What Atmosphere TV provides are 100% Ron Berger is an entrepreneur and franchising industry leader. He's served as chairman and CEO of Figaro since 2001, when he and his wife Carol and Bill Levine acquired Figaro's. Prior to that, Ron served as chairman and CEO of the NASDAQ-traded Track Corporation, an information and payment processor in the home video industry. Ron Berger, welcome to Franchise Today. Thank you, Stan. It's a real pleasure having you here, Ron. We've gotten to know each other over the years through work at IFA, but the truth is we each even there, put our heads down working on the work that we do in diversity together. We rarely get enough time to spend with each other, to just have the kind of conversation we'll enjoy today, learning a little bit more about Ron Berger. And the first thing he's going to help us learn is how franchising found him. How did that look, Ron? And when was that? So
0: true. And thank you, Stan, for the opportunity. Well, my career, strangely enough, began with a bankruptcy, not just a business bankruptcy, but a personal bankruptcy. When I was about 25 years old, I had grown up in New York City and uh, moved my family out to Oregon. And and I got there and I had an idea for a business and that was 1974. I launched that business in 1974. It was called Photo Factory. And we financed the business basically on the credit that we received from the camera manufacturers like Nikon and Canon and Minolta and so forth. And everything was going wonderfully until 1979 when interest rates suddenly spiked and and our interest rates were uh, climbed from 6% to 15% over the course of a few months period as the government tried to tamp down inflation. Well, bottom line was our business model failed. The business went bankrupt and I was a personal guarantor on all of those uh, cameras that we were buying. And so I had to file a personal bankruptcy. And, you know, uh, they say that when you go bankrupt, you hear that Walt Disney went bankrupt seven times before he started uh, the Walt Disney Company. And those things make you feel... <laughs> slightly better, <laughs> but still, you're broke. And not only are you broke, but you view yourself as a failure and, and you have to figure out how am I gonna make money? And so I was headingless at that point. And a friend of mine back east told me I should research the video industry. Uh, at that point, this was 1979, 1980, there were less than one million households in the United States that owned a VCR. And this friend of mine was saying, oh, I've just been down in Buenos Aires and people are renting videos left and right and, and they're buying copies of old TV shows on a video, that you should look into it. So I had absolutely nothing to do. I was literally unemployed and, and I was unable to get a job and I uh, hired a few of my unemployed friends from the camera business that I had been in and we created a uh, survey with a couple hundred questions and uh, we used re- reverse directories and we literally phoned several hundred video, then video retailers, which were all kinds of <laughs> strange people, like people in the high school films business and educational films and so forth. Anyway, uh, we contacted them. We completed this. 200 questionnaire, survey questionnaire, and I took out a, an ad one inch by one column in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and the ad said, if you want to know what's going on in the new home video business, buy the first ever national video store survey, $95. Anyway, we sold thousands. Wow. Literally, literally thousands. And, and what that did was, of course, tell me that, that my friend was right, and it was about to be a booming video business. And by the way, we sold copies to people like GM and 3M and the uh, the Walt Disney Company and NBC and so forth, and they were all buying it. These were like the engineering department of 3M said to us uh, as they bought a copy, they said, well, if this really, if people really do start to rent videos on our tape, well, we're going to need to re-engineer the tape. It's not built for watching hundreds of times, <laughs> <laughs> whatever. And so each of these people, like NBC was concerned, or GE, they were concerned about their TV tubes and how they would perform and, and this kind of thing. So anyway, long story short, after selling quite a few copies, I came up with an an idea and the idea was let's go into the video business and launch a chain of video stores. Now I had a small problem. I had a few small problems. A, I was still nearly broke and B, I now had a one full page single space bankruptcy filing disclosure and another full page of litigation disclosure from all the lawsuits that were flying back and forth relating to the bankruptcy. So you can imagine that disclosure document was not terribly friendly. But I started a company called National Video. I had a $1,000 investment, literally. I borrowed 960, of that thousand from my mother so basically for 40 bucks I launched the company and we joined the IFA I started serving on the diversity board and on the board of franchise relations committee I ultimately joined the IFA board of directors and over the next few years uh, and and by the way I just uh, to digress I offered my first franchises at a show called the Consumer Electronics Show that's held in Las Vegas every January I walked in there in January 1980 with 100 copies of a franchise disclosure document a group of ads which talk about prescient first ad that I showed prospects said rent one Blockbuster get one free <laughs> so which is kind of funny and later on of course Blockbuster becoming the right. giant in the business but at that point it was just a, an ad a sketch idea anyway I came to CES rented a room in a place called the circus circus but not just the circus circus I rented a room in the manor edition which was $21 a night and was basically a trailer court behind the circus circus so that's all I could afford and I walked into that show, and I walked around with my copies of my FDD, which was then a UFOC. Anyway, I walked around, and I ran, because I'd been so successful with my survey, I ran another one-inch-by-one-column ad in the New York Times, and it said, if you agree that the future of the video business lies in franchising, come see me at the Circus Circus Manor Edition at the CES. And I gave people a phone number and a room number. Anyway, a grand total of three people answered that ad. All three of them purchased franchises from me. My price for a franchise, ten dollars. And the reason it was ten dollars was because, as I said to every one of those, I said, "You know what? My last business has just gone bankrupt. I don't even have a prototype store for you to look at. I'm asking you to sign a 50-page agreement here, saying that you're going to run your store exactly how I want you to run it, and by my standards. And you're going to pay royalties on your sales. So I figure ten bucks is is a, a very reasonable uh, price for you to pay uh, for this." Anyway, as luck would have it, I signed all three of those franchisees to franchise agreements. And as more luck would have it, my very first franchisee was a gentleman named Jack Hauser from Waco, Texas. He and his wife, Candy, flew out from Waco after they spoke with me on the phone. They flew out to Vegas and we spent half a day together. And at the end of the day, Jack looks at me and he says, Ron, in order for you to get this 10 bucks out of me, you're going to have to fly out to Waco to collect it. Now, I will put you up (laughs) at our house, uh, but you're going to have to spring for for the airfare. And uh, when you get here, we will have built a store exactly to your specs and you will train us while you're out here. And at the end of the training, I'll give you your $10 check, uh, which is exactly what he did. What Jack didn't mention was that he was a college basketball star, that he owned the uh, television, uh, some of the television stations in Beaumont and Waco, Texas, that he was a franchisor himself, owned a potato spuds restaurant franchise in, in regional malls. And he was a Realty World franchisee. He owned the Realty World franchise for Waco. And so, I mean, I just could not have found a better choice as my franchisee because he understood both franchising from the franchisee's perspective, but also from the franchisor's perspective. And on top of that, when he was profitable in literally the first 30 days, Jack Hauser became the greatest salesperson uh, anyone could have. I ended up selling 746 units over the next five years, took the company public and then sold it all uh, in a a matter of five or six years, we became the largest video store franchisee Franchise chain uh, on the
1: planet. In what years? Give me the date ranges. 1980 to 1986. We sold the company in 1986. And so you were involved then with IFA there that early with that brand.
0: Yes. Well, what happened was I sold the company and I sold it because I saw another opportunity and that opportunity created a billion-dollar business to license videos to the video retailers, our own stores, basically on a what was called what I called a pay-per-transaction basis, meaning that instead of them buying video cassettes for $50, 60 $70 wholesale, which in those days was what video stores had to do, and as a result of buying it at those high prices and renting it to the public for say 2 or $3 a night, the typical video store was always out of stock of the hits because the only way they could make a living was to see that $60 videotape rent 30 and 40 times. Well, the only way that's going to happen is if I disappoint 29 out of the 30 people that want to rent it on night one and night two and night three and, and so on. So it was a failed, I thought, a failed business model. And I I went to the motion picture studios, Disney, Fox and Warner Brothers and those guys in the home theater business, motion picture theater business. You don't sell them a copy of a print of the movie. You rent them a copy of of the movie and then they in turn pay you a share of the ticket sales. Similarly in pay-per-view on cable, you don't give HBO or anybody else a a copy of your video to say, hey, just send me a million dollars. Instead you say for each time that somebody watches it, I get 50% or whatever percentage you want. So I said, why don't we do that in home video. And they hemmed and they hawed and trem- tremendous resistance, because largely because they said, we don't trust the theater owners, we think half of them are stealing from us, and why would we trust a bunch of motley video retailers, some of whom carry adult porn movies. The people at Disney, of course, you can imagine, were really concerned about supporting a business that might put Alice in Wonderland on the shelf next to a, a very different Alice in Wonderland. <laughs> so it was, it was really challenging and it took uh, years, and in fact, Arthur Anderson at the time, our accountants at the time projected we would lose $10 million to launch this business. And we came darn close. We lost about $8 million before we turned profitable. <laughs> but that business, which I started, ironically, from that same $1,000 initial investment of, of National Video um, back in 1980, that business reached a $1 billion market cap by around the year 2010. I retired from it in 2000 and went to my next adventure, which was starting Figaro's Pizza, Pizza Shmita.
1: All right. Before we get to that, a couple of thoughts and comments, uh, I think that when you Found yourself in bankruptcy, you did something that people in that condition usually don't do. You forged forward instead of giving up, which proves to me that being broke is an economic condition. It's not being poor, it's being broke. And you were broke. If you were poor, you wouldn't have come back and bounced back and done what you've done. So that's a state of mind. And yours was anything but poor doing what you did. That's just a reflection. If I can, I, can I just yeah, uh, quickly, sure.
0: quickly interject two things? One is, uh, When I heard, somebody had told me that Walt Disney had gone bankrupt seven times, when I heard that at the end of 1979, I I was still a very young man, and I thought, man, if Walt Disney can go bankrupt seven times and build Disneyland and build the Walt Disney Company, then why would I want to just sit over here grousing about my bad fortune that I had one company that went bankrupt? So first of all, to me, that was motivational. And people said to me, oh, you know, Babe Ruth hit 700 home runs, but he also struck out 3,000 times. And so when people would say that to me, it motivated me me. It just really made me say, okay, no problem. I'll take another swing at this. And then the second thing that happened was kind of ironic. I went to headhunters looking for a job. And I'm, I mean, I'm unemployed at the time and I desperately needed a job. And I finally ended up at a headhunter who took me out to lunch. And he said, Ron, no one is going to hire you. He said, no one is going to hire you because they're going to look at you and they're going to say, this is a guy who just built the business from nothing to millions in revenues over the course of a couple of years. And then he caught a bad break. So if I hire this guy, he Either he's going to be after my job or he's going to end up taking whatever I teach him and he's going to go across the street and open a competitor. He said, so no one is going to hire you in their right mind. He said, so your only option is stop sitting here in my office and get your ass out there and go open up another business because that's what you're all about. So I walked out of
1: that lunch and I just said, you know
0: what? He's right. So that's what happened.
1: I- all right. Second reflection is the Ron Berger that I know is a responsible franchisor who probably in his second and third stages of growth and development in the pizza business, changed his habits about how he awards franchises. Please tell me that's true. (laughs) Absolutely, that's true. (laughs) And and it starts, and again, Stan, you know, it's interesting. That starts with a couple of
0: things. That starts, number one, with the fact that I said to myself and I said to my wife, I said to everybody who was anywhere near me, I said, yeah, Walt may have gone bankrupt seven times, but frankly, it's really distasteful. I don't intend to ever go bankrupt again, period, Ends of story. So first of all, my business practices were that from that moment on, as i started and launched these other businesses i either took on no debt at all or when i did take on debt i never took on more debt that i couldn't pay it off if i had to instantly so if if there was a covid or if some something suddenly came out of nowhere uh, that was unexpected i could pay back everybody who we owed a dime to and just go back in business the second observation was that it had been my franchisees i had franchisees in that camera company and i had franchisees of course in national video i had 746 stories. we, we owned only three stores. So 743 of them were franchised. My second conviction came from meeting Bill and Bonnie Levine, who I uh, was introduced to by the then chairman of the IFA at a convention in 1983. When I met them, I pitched Bill on joining my board of directors because I was thinking about taking the company public. But also I knew that I needed a mentor. I needed somebody who had been to the stage of hundreds of stores where I had never been past even a hundred. And Bill at that point had 1,200 pips and California closets and all kinds of other businesses. He refused to get on my board of directors and so did she for a year or more as they were evaluating whether Ron Berger would live up to their standards of franchisee relations. And their standards of franchisee relations were basically, you're going to treat these folks who come in and buy a franchise from you, you're going to treat them not just as partners, you're going to treat them as people who, without whom you don't deserve to be in business. And so you are going to focus on their business model, not on yours. You are going to focus on... How much money they can make, not on how much you can make. You're going to be focused on how happy they are in their ownership of a franchise, not on you and your life. And their whole mantra was, if you take care of the franchisees, everything else will flow from there. And if you don't, you shouldn't be in this business.
1: So We're talking today with Ron Berger. He's chairman of the board and the CEO of Figaro's Pizza and Pizza Schmitz Incorporated. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Franchise Today will be right back. But first, a word from our sponsors. My goal each week is to bring you information from those who have been there, done that. Well, that describes my good friend Jerry Henley and his Launch to Growth consultancy to a T. At Launch to Growth, their motto is scale to get better before you scale to get bigger, which could apply to new emerging concepts just as easily as to established legacy brands where culture and processes have degraded over time, leaving less profitability for both the Zor and the Zs. Using proven system and soul tools and solutions, Launch to Growth teaches you how to drive unit-level success across your entire franchise organization, positively impacting both your culture and bottom line. You see, Zor success is not just about systems. It's also about the soul of the people. Jerry's programs create a win-win franchise model, defining and aligning franchisee and Zor success so that everyone achieves their respective goals. It's franchising done right, deploying a four step process for scaling smartly utilizing the proven system and sold software platform and methodology. Create alignment build trust and accountability with systems and processes that actually work to scale profitability across all areas of your organization. Learn more about Jerry Henley and System & Soul at his website, launchtogrowth.com. Tell him you heard about it on Franchise Today for a no-cost, no-obligation initial consultation. Once again, find them at launchtogrowth.com. And my conversation continues with Ron Berger, and I'm fascinated by this conversation, Ron, for all the years I've known you. This is first time I'm hearing this, too. So how entertaining and great is it to hear Mm. an entrepreneur just put his head down and go, and don't dare tell him he can't get something done. He'll just double down on that and keep on going. So let's get up to date on the pizza business, and how did Figaro's come into your world? So thanks again for the
0: opportunity to tell you you all about this. So in 2000 we had built our video business up to where it was doing hundreds of millions of dollars a year. We had taken it public. We were doing fantastically uh, both in the U.S. and Japan and the U.K. and it was literally a very very large business. I had uh, give you an idea 500 plus employees in my corporate offices. So we had built a very large business and I decided to retire from it. And so I moved to Palm Springs where Bill Levine uh, by that point, my closest personal friend and, and my mentor also lived. And so for two weeks, I joined him playing golf twice a day. And, and this guy could play 36 holes every day for the rest of his life. And after about two weeks of this, I said, Bill, this is okay for you. You're an 80-some-odd-year-old guy. Me, I'm only in my 50s. I can't do this. I need to do what fulfills me, which is to start a business, another business. And he said, okay, well, if it's in, as long as it's in franchising. And I said, okay, Bill, we'll, we'll make it in franchising. I love franchising just like you do. And so... I went to the Entrepreneur Magazine, you know, list of the 500 top franchises and I quite literally started at A and started working my way through the alphabet. And when I got to F and I realized that I was familiar with Figaro's Pizza from living up in the Northwest. I liked the concept. Figaro's concept was similar to another company at the time called Papa Murphy's and what those companies did was they they did a model called take and bake, which meant that they made a pizza right in front of you, kind of what became the Chipotle and Subway and now Blaze and Mod, a kind of model where they take the skin, they ask you which kind you want. Do you want thin crust, thick crust? What kind you want? What kind of sauce do you want? What toppings do you want? And uh, you could watch them build it. And then they would build it on a what was called an oven-ready baking tray, similar to the trays that you find your lasagna in or your frozen pizza in the supermarket. And so it's a, a paper that can withstand 500 degrees for a half hour. And then they would shrink wrap it, and then they would put baking instructions on top and off you went and you took it home. And the beauty of Take and Bake was, I, as an example, love my Pizza burn the roof of your mouth hot. I mean, I really like it hot, and I also like to add basil and oregano and stuff like that to it. So for people like myself, take and bake was a perfect model because you brought it home, you knew what the ingredients were, you watched them build it, you could add whatever you wanted to add, and then uh, fifteen minutes later, you could have a piping hot pizza fresh out of your oven. So we approached. uh, When I say we, I meant Bill and myself. We approached Figaro's ownership and come to find that the franchisees couldn't stand these people. The owners that were there, they they had done, I guess, an okay job. But the, they had terrible franchisee relations, and as you know, as I've told you already, I'm a franchisee relations guy. So once I had a deal with them to buy the company, that I negotiated on terms that were acceptable to Bill and myself. I then said, well, I'm conditioning purchasing this company on my going and talking with every single franchisee in your entire system. And so I got in my car and I drove 3,000 miles over a period of two or three weeks, and every single franchisee in that system, I either saw them personally or I called them and spoke with them on the phone if I couldn't see them personally. And only after doing that due diligence, visiting all the franchisees and learning from franchisees that, hey, this is a very profitable business. And yes, you can make a lot of money doing this, but we hate the management. Please buy the company. That was a common refrain. People would say, Ron, please buy this company. And so I did. And we almost immediately expanded upon the model. So the model in those days, which we still sell today, which is a thousand square foot, basically 20 by 50, looks just like a pop-up Murphy's acts like just a Papa Murphy's. It's take and bake only, basically. So that was one model. But we created what we now call the standard model, which offers both baked and take and bake. So typically 1,200 to 1,800 square feet. And most of the Figaro's today are this so-called standard model because that allows us, if you think about, let's say you're having a Super Bowl party or some other party at your house and you need a dozen pizzas. Well, that allows you to say, you know, I'll buy five baked and my party's starting at 2 p.m. I'll bring five baked home and I'll bring the other pizzas unbaked. And at 2 or 3 or 4 p.m., a couple hours into the party, if I need more pizzas, I just turn on the oven and I start baking them one after the other as I need them. And the beauty of that was piping hot, fresh pizza throughout the party, instead of a bunch of stale pizzas sitting there that you ordered from one of our nameless competitors, that whatever time it arrived, a half hour later, was pretty stale. And also, it meant that there was no waste because at the end of the party, if in fact the partygoers had only used 10 of your dozen pizzas, well, the family, you could throw those other two in the in the fridge, and the family could enjoy those the next couple of days. So that became our standard model. Our third model is the same exact standard model, but now it includes a full-blown restaurant. The first two models were stores, meaning they looked like a Domino's or like a Little Caesars or like a Papa John's, where you walk in, you pick up your pizza, and you walk out, and that's it. The only seats there are for waiting for your order. So, But this next model, which we call standard plus dine-in, is the same exact model as the standard model, but now it's got seating, and typically, like a, say, a, Subway or a Chipotle. These typically offer seating for 60 to 100. They require about 1,800 to 3,000 square feet. And that model is working quite well as well. And our newest model, which we've only opened one of so far in San Marcos, Texas, is flourishing. It's been there now about three years. And as we prove it out, and that's what we call Figaro's Pizza and Pub. And Figaro's Pizza and Pub, as you might imagine, is everything that is in the standard plus dine-in, except now, similar to kind of a Buffalo Wild Wings. I tell people all the time, it's think of it as of Buffalo Wild Wings focused on pizza. So basically what it is is a full bar, local craft beers on tap, sometimes a party room, sometimes lottery games, lots of TV sets. And this model also is not entirely pizza-centric. We also sell burgers and fries and shrimp cocktails and you name it. So these take uh, 2,500 to 6,000 square feet, with 3,500 being standard. So those are the four models. And as we were building the business at Figaro's, I kind of took a cue from J.W. Marriott, Bill Marriott, and the people at chains like that, where I looked at the fact that Marriott Corporation might have 50 different brands, ranging from the ritz Carlton to the J.W. Marriott and now the Sheraton Hotels, all the way down to the Residence Inn or the Fairfield Inn or whatever, Uh, it doesn't change the fact that back in the back office, there's one guy who's in charge of purchasing. And that one guy is buying an awful lot of soap. He's buying an awful lot of sheets and an awful lot of mattresses. And the beneficiaries of having a home office that has this multiple brand approach is that the franchisees of all the brands are the big winners because their costs are dropping of everything, of soap, of buying the advertising that they need, of the training that they need, and so on. And and of course, the corporation saves money because you only need one president, you only need one controller, you only need one director of marketing, you only need one IT department and so on. And so after buying Figueroa's and starting to grow it nicely, we reached out to a host of other chains. I quite literally, Stan, took the list of the top 100 pizza chains in the country and I looked at every one of them and those that were strong in their region, that had a strong region regional presence, meaning they were either number one, number two, or number three in their region, and that were largely franchised bottle. I contacted every single one of those owners over the next few years and said, look, uh, I'm interested in acquiring your business, and here's why. I think I can not only pay you a nice return, but on top of that, you can become a shareholder in my company if you wish after the fact. And also, I don't buy companies to dissolve them, meaning that if I buy your company and you have a management team, I can vow right now and promise that I will keep them all on. I have no intention whatsoever of gutting your model, and quite the opposite. If you are the creator of the great recipes and so forth, I'll sign you to a consulting agreement, and you can stay on not only as a shareholder, but you can stay on as a consultant, and you can become a franchisee of the company, and I want you to continue to be the brand steward so that nothing is ever lost in terms of the personality and the brand promise to the consumer. And what I want is that I guarantee you I'll be lowering the cost of your cheese and your boxes and your dough and your sauce and I'll be lowering all of those and I will be delivering to you more effective marketing, more effective advertising because of the group buying power that we all have together and so over the next few years I acquired a company called Pizza Schmitz and Pizza Schmitz was and remains the largest player in the New York style pizza by the slice in the Portland, Oregon market so we bought that and then in 2012 we bought a company called Nick and Willie's Pizza which is based in Boulder, Colorado and each of these companies have their own label their own recipes, their own everything. And we have not monkeyed with any of them. Give you an example. Let's just quickly on Shmita. Shmita's founder was a gentleman named Andre Jehan. He remains a consultant to the company. He remains the brand steward. He remains a franchisee and a very important franchisee. And now he's a shareholder of our company as well. So true to my word, that is exactly my style of how I did this. And I hope to ultimately acquire dozens more. By the way, a real quick story on the leverage of buying power. When we acquired Nick and Willies. We, again, did a lot of due diligence. And so we had been researching it for months before the day we actually did a conference call with all the franchisees to introduce ourselves to them and allay their concerns and tell them what we thought we could do for them. Well, by the time we had that call, we had already gone through and analyzed every one of the things they were buying for those franchisees and what the new cost would be the day after the deal closed. And so I was able to start my call with those franchise owners. And when I got to the point, of saying, we're going to show you what operating leverage you can get by ganging your purchases with those of Schmitz with those of Figaro's. And here's what I can tell you is going to happen. The $2 a sack that you're currently paying for dough starting the day after we close, $1.02 is what it's going to cost you. So it was unbelievable. The reception from franchisees each time we made these acquisitions has been just solid gold. And at Schmitz today, we have three concepts in that brand too. And those are all going great guns. We have the original schmitzas, which are called pizza schmitzas. And basically, it's just a New York style pizzeria. So imagine a 2,000 to 2,500 square foot restaurant in which people walk in and they see on display typically a cheese, a pepperoni, Hawaiian, and then these days a, uh, a gluten-free or a veggie or a vegan pizza and maybe something exotic like an alligator sausage pizza. And so they'll see five or six pizzas on display and they'll basically walk in and say, I'll have a slice of this and a slice of that and a salad and maybe some wings and a Coke and or Pepsi. and and that's it. That's the typical Pizza Schmitz customer profile. So average ticket 14 bucks. Our next model up though is called Schmitz Pub and Grub and again just like the Figaro's Pizza and Pub this is the same restaurant but now with 3,500 square feet that can accommodate anywhere from 45 to 80 people in a fun exciting happening place with not only the pizza by the slice bar but also the other kind of bar. So now you can have a Bloody Mary or a beer or something with your slice or two and that is now our most successful model. And by the way, it was developed too by our founder, André Jehan. And then our most recent model is called the Schmitza Public House. And it is typically 6,000 square feet, seating for anywhere from 150 to 250, anywhere from 30 to 50 craft beers on tap, a menu that is 50% non-pizza, meaning it's 50% burgers and salmon dinners and shrimp tacos and I mean, you name it. These are really, really high volume locations to just, give you an idea that the largest one we have clocks in at between two and three million a year in revenues. So that's it. That's what we've... An amazing story.
1: Amazing, amazing mindset that has led to where you are in that there's no better way to win a franchisee over than to drop the cost of goods day one. I mean, you've got their attention immediately. And I think the other thing that's magical about what you're doing is you are defeating something that has become known in the world of franchising to development people like me as the founder syndrome, where founders push the envelope as far as they can in most cases, but then the Peter Principle comes along And they quickly learn that they've reached their own level of incompetency and they can't get any further they get stuck so picking up local favorites and regional favorites and then pumping in the the economies of scale which is what you've described so eloquently it's a win-win-win for everyone it's it's just there's nobody in this that doesn't win
0: that's exactly right and the franchisees to back all the way back to Bill Levine telling me 25 years ago that he was only interested in building franchises where the franchisee made a fortune and where the business model was just Fantastic. That's really what we're doing. When uh, someone calls me, a prospect and so forth, I dare them to call every single one of our franchise owners. I say, (laughs) you know, that's what I did before I bought these companies. You should do the same thing before you buy a franchise. Don't listen to me. I'm trying to sell you the franchise. Call my franchise owners and just ask them the key questions Are you happy? Do you feel that the management team at your franchisor loves you, cares for you, and would do anything for you to make sure you're successful? And three, are you making a lot of money? If you like those answers, buy the franchise. If you don't, then I expect I'll
1: never hear from you again. Let's talk in the time left about who makes the perfect candidate for one of your franchisees and how do you assess that and bring them on board? That is a great question,
0: Sam. I would say to you that the perfect candidate for us is a person who is outgoing, who loves people, who is service-oriented, who from the get-go says please and thank you and is the most polite person you're ever going to meet. In other words, somebody who just was born to serve. And if you're born to serve, I don't care if you thought you were going to run a mortuary or if you thought you were going to be a minister, it doesn't matter to me. Teaching you how to make pizza is the simplest thing in the world. What we cannot teach is that service mentality. We can't teach how building your business is all about building relationships with your customers and your employees and your staff and management, making it a win-win-win, a life where everybody comes away from it saying, I don't want to be doing anything else.
1: I was told years ago by one of my first employers in the franchise space, Tony Kanza at Blimpy, that second to money, the one ingredient, everybody must bring to be a part of this company's passion. And literally, you just scream that. Ron, we are at the point where it's time to ask you if there's anything I haven't asked that you wish that I did.
0: Gosh, I don't understand. I've loved knowing you. I've loved working with you for, I don't know, it's got to be 30 years that you and I were on the Minorities and Franchising Committee. And I think that's where we met many, many, many years ago. And you and I could spend days talking about okay. franchising and about what a wonderful institution it is and how great the IFA is and how important It is to the industry and to all of us. And so I don't know.
1: I think you've asked me everything you could possibly ask. I'm going to ask you one more thing before we go, contact information, because my suspicion is that there are going to be not only people interested in learning about franchising at the unit level, but some of those regional brands that are listening might want to learn how to get in touch with you to talk about maybe a merger or an acquisition. So how about some contact info? Oh, that's easy.
0: Ron, R-O-N, at Figaros, F is in Frank, I-G-A-R-O-S as in Sam.com, Ron at com And my personal cell
1: is 503-522-6611. Ron, it's been a pleasure. The time has flown. Those bells in the background tell us it's time to go. <laughs> <laughs> You're so right. Appreciate you being here with us today Take and care. look forward to seeing you back out on the trail.
0: Take care, Stan. Thanks so much again.
1: Well, before I close out, a special shout-out today to a loyal listener and one of the most thoughtful people I know. Cater Danford at Northeast Collar up in Live Free or Die Country, Exeter, New Hampshire. Many thanks to you for your card celebrating my induction this week into the National Buffalo Wing Hall of Flame. That meant so much to me, Cater, and with your permission, I'm going to post it on Facebook and LinkedIn. Well, that does it for today. Coming up next week, a fascinating personal and brand story. Bryce Henson will join us to tell us how he turned FitBody Bootcamp into one of the fastest-growing franchises in its competitive set, starting out as a single-unit franchisee before joining the corporate team and ultimately partnering with founder, Pedros Koulian. Today, he remains a multi-unit franchisee and just this past June was named CEO of the entire organization. Bryce Henson, right here next week on Franchise Today. Until then,